Well, we've had a lot going on this morning, so the sermon's going to have to be shorter. And all of God's people said? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all were supposed to say, oh, we love to hear the Word of God. <laughs> if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Let me give you the big picture of where we are. If you're new to the New Testament, the book of Acts is the only historical sequel we have to the Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. What happened after Jesus died, rose, and then ascended into heaven, the book of Acts tells us. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 247, it's the birth of the church in Jerusalem. Jesus was alive from the dead, spending time with his disciples, gave them final instructions that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. They went to Jerusalem to wait for what he had promised, the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came and filled God's people with power, and they began to proclaim Jesus and 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they were together, loving one another, worshiping, learning from the apostles, sharing their faith. It was wonderful. The church was born. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at this next section from 3-1 all the way to 6-7. And this is the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. It was born in Jerusalem, and now it's expanding in Jerusalem. We saw last week that the authorities said, you have filled this city with your teaching. And we'll see in chapter 6, verse 7, that the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so we, we bring this section to a close of the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. In the next section, we're going to take the gospel and begin to extend outside of Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, up to Antioch, over to Asia Minor, all around the Aegean Sea, and then finally to Rome. But as we bring this section to a close, this expansion within Jerusalem, there have been three schemes of the devil, if you will, that has tried to get this early church off track even as it was just getting started. The first was persecution, and we saw that several weeks ago, and we saw it last week. That as the early followers of Jesus began to follow him and help others do the same, as they began to proclaim Jesus throughout the city, there was great opposition. Some of them were arrested, they were interrogated, they were threatened, and eventually the apostles were even flogged, whipped terribly. Persecution, all in an effort to get them to go quiet and to quit, and of course they didn't. They, be, they continued to proclaim the gospel. In fact, we saw in verse 42 of chapter 5, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the church persisted. They had gospel grit. 
Another scheme of the enemy was moral corruption from within. Several weeks ago, Matt preached from chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In great contrast to Barnabas, who was a man of great love and generosity, Ananias and Sapphira were trying to make themselves look better and look more spiritual than they really were. And in order to do that, they had to lie. And their lie, God took very seriously put them both to death. Ugh. And Matt preached, and I believe the same, that it was, a, it was a powerful message from God early on in the days of the church that he desires holiness among his people. Matt tied it for us to the Old Testament whenever Joshua led the people into the land just as they were beginning to, to inherit the promises of God. And they defeated Jericho, and they went to this little city of Ai, and a man named Achan sinned, brought unholiness into the camp, and God put Achan and his family to death as a word picture, if you will, that God desires holiness among his people, and in the same way, just as the church is getting off and getting going, and here's Ananias and Sapphira lying God makes a very powerful statement that he desires holiness among his people. So persecution, moral corruption within the people of God that could get us off track. And now finally we're going to see the third. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it's a scheme of distraction, if you will to bog down the apostles with very legitimate concerns, but maybe some things outside of their core responsibilities. And so we want to try and learn a few things, if we can, this morning. Some things that maybe we can value as a church family together in hopes of staying on track. So Benji, show us that first one here. Let's value all of God's people. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, that's wonderful. The early church is experiencing growth here. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving food. Who were these Hellenistic Jews and these Hebrews, these native Hebrews? Both groups were Jewish. The native Hebrews, as the New American Standard translates it, those were Jewish people who lived within the land of Israel and who loved their Jewish heritage, no doubt, and really tried to push back on any other influences to who they were and how they were meant to live their lives, even as Christians. The Hellenistic Jews... Those were Jewish people who most likely were born outside the land of Israel, among what's called the Diaspora. And in those days, going back several hundred years, when Alexander the Great and the Greeks had taken control of that part of the world, they Hellenized that part of the world. They, they Greekized that part of the world. There was a common language across Greek, and common culture and those kinds of things, even as eventually the Romans had come to power, the Greek culture still had a huge 
influence. Well, these Hellenistic Jews most likely had been born and raised and lived for some time outside the land of Israel and yet now found themselves in Jerusalem. And they were different in some ways than their native Hebrew brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so you had these, this is back in the days when Christians used to butt heads with each other. That's a joke. Christians of differences trying to get along. We might not have native Hebrew Christians here and Hellenized Jewish Christians here. But always within the body of Christ, there are differences. Sometimes it's differences of race and color. Sometimes it's differences of education. Sometimes it's difference of socioeconomic background. Sometimes it's differences of politics, where you're from, how much you got, what you look like. There's all kinds of differences that in so many cases would keep us apart. But now here we are in the family of God, all having met at the foot of a cross. And the gospel teaches us that in Jesus Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. There's no place for racism within the body of Christ. There's no place for bigotry. There's no place for prejudice. There's no place for condescension. Looking down upon another person for where they're from or how they talk or what they look like or this, that, or the other. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So there's this tension. Some of these widows were being overlooked. Because they were the Hellenistic widows. May it never be among us. May we value all of God's people in our fellowship. May we love one another as we love our own selves. May we think Jesus had a golden rule along the way. Treat one another as you would have them treat you. So there was this problem, and a complaint arose, a a murmuring. The Greek word is funny, it's gongusmas, and the scholars tell us that there really is no root for the word, it's more, it's an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is, gongusmas, it's murmuring. It's complaining. This is back in the days when God's people would murmur and complain about things. That's another joke too, right? We can do this sometimes. Things aren't going the way we want them to. Decisions made that we think are crazy. Preferences that we have that others don't. It's the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for whenever Israel was complaining to Moses that God had brought, or he had brought them out into the wilderness to die. Well, 
the 12 in verse 2. Summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. These 12, the apostles, are going to meet this need. They stand up and they're going to propose a solution to this problem. We're not going to have it. We're because of prejudice or bigotry, one group is being overlooked. We've got to address that and we've got to fix that because we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so they're going to do their best to propose a solution. But in so doing, maybe our second value is let's value the leader's call to the word and prayer and people. Twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable. Some of your translations might read, It's not right. I think that's a little bit strong. I think it puts it into a right, wrong, uh, sin, righteousness, moral kind of issue. I'm not so sure that was the case. I'm not so sure it would have been morally wrong for Peter to have helped in this issue. I think the New American Standard's pretty good here. It's not desirable. Maybe it's not appropriate for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These guys wanted to stay focused on what God had called them to do as the apostles, as the leaders. They understood that the ministry of prayer and the Word of God was essential to the purpose of the church in evangelism, in discipleship, in shepherding God's people and equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for missions. They, they wanted to, to hang in there and give themselves to those things while at the same time proposing that we also meet these other needs. Pastors can sometimes get ourselves in trouble when we get ourselves busy with things outside of our calling. Most of the time, it's probably our fault. There's a handful of things that go through my soul on these sorts of things. We want to show that there's nothing beneath us. There's nothing here that I'm unwilling to do. Set up tables, stack chairs, take out the trash, change the light bulbs. We don't want to give off this vibe that that's below us. And so sometimes when maybe we ought not be focused on that sort of thing, we give ourselves to it and maybe too much. We, we want to show that we're part of the team and nothing is below us. We're not better than anybody else. I think sometimes in my own heart there's a sense that I want to earn my keep. Kind of push back on the, the jokes. Well, you only work one day a week anyway, preacher. You know? How many rounds of golf did you play this week, Pastor. Sometimes that kind of floats around there that we only work on Sunday, you know, and the rest of the week we just sit around and play golf and that kind of thing, and so we want to push back on that. We, we don't want you to think that of us, and 
So we jump in. Sometimes it's just necessary. And depending on context, this is an interesting context. Katy, suburbia. It's a fast-paced, busy place. Folks are up early, fighting traffic and working long hours and coming home late, and you got to do it. And, and, and so often ladies, if they're not working themselves, they got those kids and they're running them to soccer games, and they're, just, they're just busy. And that, all of that's wonderful and that's good, but therefore sometimes it's necessary, at least it seems that way for a pastor, to maybe give himself to things that maybe he ought not be giving himself to. We shy away from asking because we know you're busy. You know you got a lot going on. You got up early, you fought it all day long, you're coming home late, and we know. We don't want to ask you, take you away from your family more. Sometimes I think for myself, it's even the widget factor. Ministry is kind of an invisible deal. You never, you often don't know, is it, is it working? Are people's lives being changed? Are they seeing more of the glory of God than they, with the eyes of their heart? Are they, are they, is he becoming a more loving husband? Is she fighting the, the sins that so entangle her in pursuing that which is good and righteous? Sometimes it's so invisible and you, you're not sure if you're making any progress. And so when you, when you set up tables and you surround them with chairs, you can kind of sit back and go, I did something today. I started something and I finished it and it feels pretty good. Because sometimes it can feel so, I don't know. So those are things you got to, kinds of things you got to fight. It's not good. It would not have been good for the apostles, or at least not appropriate for the apostles, to have given themselves at least too much to taking care of the widows. They needed to make sure it was getting taken care of, but while they gave themselves to the Word, and to prayer, and to people. When they don't, it takes a pastor away from his core calling. It robs God's people from legitimate opportunities for them to love and serve others. And the needs may often get met in ways less favorable. If the pastor could do a better job of calling God's people to service and, and delegating these incredible things, these opportunities, the needs may get met in much better ways. And so when I read this text, it calls to me to prayer. We will devote ourselves to prayer. Why? Because these guys understood far better than, than I ever would that, that, that the work of ministry happens magically. The Spirit of God has to be in it where it's all just noise. Nothing of eternal value happens unless God is in it. It's like Elijah, the, um, 
when he was facing off against the against Baal and the prophets of Baal. And they were going to see who the true God was. Was it Baal or was it Jehovah? Here's what we'll do. Let's, let's build a, an altar. And you cry out to Baal and see if he sends fire to consume what we've placed upon this altar. And if you know the story, the prophets of Baal cried out and danced and cut themselves trying to get Baal to notice them day all day long, all day long, and nothing ever came. And then it was Elijah's turn, the prophet of God. And he took that same altar and he just poured it with water all over. What's the first thing you don't do if you want to build a fire? Douse it with water. And he poured it and just smothered it all over with water. And then he stepped back and he cried out, and God sent the fire. Pastors, elders, leaders of churches can do all the organizing of the altar they want. And they must, and they, they've, they've got to put the stuff there. And, but at the end of the day, they've got to step back and they've got to pray and ask God to send the fire. I see this, it says, Mitch, pray more than you do. Give yourself to the ministry of the Word. This is God's means of revealing Himself to us. This is God's means of revealing His will to us. There, there is glory here. If God would be so pleased to open the eyes of our heart to see it, this is God's means of teaching and reproving and correcting and training us. This is God's means of growing his people in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. So pastors and elders are to be teachers and preachers of the word of God. To be theologians who understand God's word and the ability to bring it to bear upon the lives of people. I read a little story this week that just, ugh. the guy who wrote it, I trust completely. He's a theologian, professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago. He's a theologian, and he wrote this story, and he said, this happened. It's not one of those little stories you get out of like a preacher's list of illustration or books of illustration. You're not really sure if it's true or not. He says this one was true. He's over in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was doing some teaching over there, but on this particular day, he was walking around one of those old cemeteries. And there was an American couple there, a husband and a wife, and they too were walking around the cemetery looking at the headstones. And he overheard the wife say to her husband, Oh, look, honey, they buried two people in this grave. And he thought that was kind of funny. He said, What do you mean, honey? Why do you say that? And she said, Well, it says right here, here lies a pastor and a theologian. The idea that you can't, that those aren't the same person. A pastor who is a theologian gives himself to the Word of God and to the, to the truth that's coming from it and how it relates to our lives today. Pastors need to pray. 
They need to give themselves to the Word. And I add people because you're praying for people and you're ministering the Word of God to people. Third, we need to value the gifted and servant-hearted nature of God's people. It's not appropriate for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Probably what was going on here, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy 5, if there's a widow within the body of Christ, and obviously she doesn't have a husband to take care of her, well, then that responsibility fell to her children. But if she didn't have any children around or who were willing to take care of her, and then the church would come alongside and would take care of her. And some of the scholars think that um, this is a, these widows would maybe come to the church, to, to the, the people of God on a weekly basis, maybe to receive food, to receive a little bit of money, maybe some clothing or just other needs that they might have. And then also that um, maybe on a, on a daily basis as needs just arose, they would come. And so uh, for the long time, I just, I had in mind like a potluck, you know, and everybody's getting served food, but somebody's overlooking the table of the Hellenistic widows. But anyway, they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And so the 12 proposed choosing others to meet the need. And the congregation, in verse 5, the statement found approval. It was pleasing with the whole congregation. They said, you bet. You bet. Let's meet this need, but you guys stick to the Word of God and to prayer. These guys were appropriate to this particular calling. We believe most, if not all of them, were Hellenists. They too were from outside the land, even though they were Jewish, except this one, Nicholas. He's a proselyte from Antioch. That probably means that he was, he was a full-blooded Gentile who had proselytized to Judaism and then ultimately came to faith in Jesus, and he's part of the church. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And just a note on these two fellows, or two of these fellows. Lest you think, well, look at chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, this man who was just chosen and appointed to help meet this need within the church, is one of the greatest preachers the church has ever known. We're going to see his sermon in chapter 7, and Luke gives his sermon more press by far than any other sermon in the book of Acts. This guy was something. And yet when called upon to help serve these widows, you bet I'm in. Look over in chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. 
Here's another one, Philip. He's going to be a model of evangelistic zeal. That's his, it's why in many, maybe he's enshrined in the pages of Scripture. Because he's the one who's going to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus. And then he's going to be the one to go to the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans. Half Jew, half Gentile, didn't worship in Jerusalem. 700 years of butting heads between the Samaritans and the Jews. And who's going to be the one to take the gospel to them? Philip, one of these guys that was just chosen to serve tables. That's why I worded it. They're not only gifted, but they're servant-hearted brothers. We need to draw it to a close. Look at verse 7. All throughout the book, Luke gives us progress reports. When he finished the birth of the church in Jerusalem, 1-1 to 2-47, he gave us a progress report, 2-47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as he's drawing this section, 3-1 to 6-7, to a close, we get a progress report. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, I think if, if we weren't careful, we might say as a result of chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, verse 7 happened. But I think the nature of these progress reports pushes us to interpret this. No, this is summing up 3-1 all the way to 6-6. Six, six. This is summing up their persistence in the face of persecution, their pursuit of holiness in the face of moral compromise, their willingness to stay on track as, yes, give yourselves to prayer and to the Word of God and ministry to people, and we'll get these tables taken care of in light of that. The Word of God kept on spreading. I've got a quote here from John Stott on all of this. If he, Satan, had succeeded in any of these attempts, persecution, moral compromise, the danger of exposure to false teaching, had the apostles given themselves over to serving tables and, and neglected the word of God, that was a threat within the church that false teaching, the new community of Jesus would have been annihilated in its infancy. But the apostles were sufficiently alert to detect the, the devil's scheme we need their spiritual discernment today to recognize the activity both of both the Holy Spirit and the evil spirit. We also need their faith in the strong name of Jesus, by whose authority alone the powers of darkness can be overcome. Imagine, Redeemer, if in the face of persecution, in the face of moral compromise, in the face of distraction, the early church, as the early church did, imagine us shining brightly perseverance, the pursuit of holiness, and in this wise strategy to stay on track, what might the result be? The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Katy, and a great many of the, who would it be? We're becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word this morning. And, and I'm just so thankful for the men and women for 10, 11 years before I ever got here and the last nine and a half years that I've been here. The men and women so willing to jump in and serve tables. Lord, would you help us in this back and forth relationship in the months and years to come? Would you help the pastors, the elders, to give ourselves to the word and to prayer and ministry to people, jumping in on this, that, and the other when we can and should? And would you help us as a body of Christ, gifted, some of us in administration, some of us in service, some of us in mercy, some of us in leadership, some of us in giving, some of us in this, and others of us in that. Help us to use our gifts and our servant-heartedness to bless this place, to bless this family of God. And oh, Lord, Help us to persevere. Help us to pursue holiness. And would you be so pleased that through us, many, many, many might hear the good news of Jesus, put their faith in him, become disciples and into the nooks and crannies of this culture. Would you amaze us with who's coming to faith? It had to be astonishing that some of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith in Jerusalem. Who might it be in our city? Oh, Lord. Would you bring about a revival among your church here in Katy. Not just in this local church, but in the local churches spread all over our city. Would you revive us with a sense of your glory, the majesty of Christ, this incredible gospel. Would you revive us with, with a love for these things? and the compassion towards the men, women, and children of our city. And send us forth and fill this city with your gospel. Lord, maybe there's, there's one here today, this morning, who does not know of the saving grace of God. Maybe he or she knows themselves to be a sinner, but they've figured what they needed to do was shape up, get their act together, go to church, be better. But Lord, would you help them even now to see that that's not it, that we're not saved by shaping up and doing better. We are saved by the grace of God who sent his son Jesus to live for us a holy life we couldn't live 
and to die upon a cross, not for his sins, but for ours, to take the penalty due us. And that you raised him from the dead because his sacrifice was complete. Help them to see that they need Christ and that by trusting in him, they can be forgiven of all of their sins and they can be adopted into your family, safe and secure forevermore. And that you will give your Holy Spirit and help them become a new kind of person. Help them to see it, to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.